0: Set the table, pull up a chair. Mm. This is Studio 2 on Thanksgiving Eve. I'm Avi wolfman
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up later in the hour, we'll hear from an expert in conflict resolution about how to tame heated discussions at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I've had those, (laughs) let me tell you. So Trisha Jones from Temple University is with us to answer some of your questions about hot button topics that tend to escalate. We don't want that to
0: happen. We don't. Thanksgiving. Yeah. We don't. Hall may be suing oats. <laughs> we're all about keeping the peace here at Studio 2. I too. love that. Yeah. Uh, we have some questions for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Are you nervous about Thanksgiving this year? Do you have uh, some questions about how to handle conflict? Maybe you've learned something and you have some wisdom to share with all of us. Give us a call, 888 477 9499 or email studio2 at WHYY.org. Also, later in the hour, Cherry, we get to listen to your interview with Ayana Mathis about her new book, The Unsettled. It was a really good book, and I'm really
1: excited, Avi. I've heard
0: great things about yeah. this conversation. I haven't heard it yet.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about that. So we'll also be chatting with Billy Penn's Mayor Rendy to talk about a child labor investigation. But before we get there... We have an update on the school board election in Bucks County. Avi, take it away.
0: Mm. Somehow, Mm. we are still talking about the Central Bucks School District. Someday we might even talk about the education in the Central Buck School yeah. District. That's not going to be today. is the drama. Um, so as you, you might recall, it was a Republican-controlled board. They got swept out in the most recent election by uh, Democrats. Mm-hmm. Now some of the folks who have lost those races want hand recounts. They have made some vague allegations of fraud. It's like a little microcosm of America up there. Um, There are three races in question. There's a a petition that's been sent to a judge to to get some recounts going. We don't know when the judge might act on those petitions. Um, But uh, the tightest contest among these three was won by 295 votes, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's actually like a 53 percent to 47 percent margin Mm -hmm. because these are like very low turnout, uh, low number elections. So, yeah. Fraud, blah, 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 fraud. No one really knows what the details are, but that's what's been kind of vaguely alluded to.
1: They need Trisha Jones from (laughs) (laughs) Temple University to come in here and resolve these conflicts, okay? That's what they really need. (laughs) And I mean, what was interesting to me is according to the Inquirer, one of the, they asked for comments on why they were filing, some of these folks were filing petitions. I won't mention the names of the the petitioners, but one person, they said, oh, why are you filing this petition? And what are the fraud or error that you're you're pointing to yeah, and this person wrote back. Why do you assume I think there was fraud or error in the election? Well, you have to attest that that's right. what you thought <laughs> when you filed this petition. So that, you know, and it's only 50 bucks to file this petition. It's super cheap. Yeah. Um, but it'll probably cost taxpayer money to, yeah, to, 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 do to the deal recount. with this. And then, you know, I think about all of this is coming on the heels of that um, settlement with the school superintendent that is now. Being kind of ousted. He, he got 700 grand. So it's a very expensive. Taxpayers in Bucks, uh, Central Bucks are spending a lot because of this dispute. They need Trisha to come in and settle this. We need
0: like a scoreboard here yeah. in the studio. Zero days since we last talked about the Central Bucks school district. I feel like every single week there is some sort of story about that school. It's the third largest school district in the state of Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah. Well, the maelstrom
0: continues. All right, continues. let's move uh, let's move out of well, Pennsylvania something that altogether. Soon will yeah. soon
1: not continue, right? Good news out of Camden, New Jersey. Finally, a toxic stories high pile of waste will now be officially evicted and gone Thank from God. Camden. Yeah, crews have started to remove this massive waste pile that has loomed high over the Bergen Square neighborhood. This was an illegal dump site. It contains debris, dirt that Camden of health officials said contained toxic materials like lead and mercury. There was a fence around it. Wayhill Realty Holdings allegedly owned this. The city went to try to get them to clean it up a couple of years ago. Couldn't get it done, so they took over the property and hence this multi-year effort to finally clean up this lot. Um, 50 truckloads a day are now moving this toxic waste along a specific route they're dumping it into a landfill in Blackwood but finally they're cleaning it out and it'll be a public park eventually but this has been a years long issue residents have been complaining Avi and it made me say to myself I don't think this would have happened if these weren't low income residents in Camden this would have never been there that's what the residents have
0: been saying for years. This, this company, Wayhill Realty Holdings, LLC, would have never gotten away with this if it hadn't been in Camden. And, hey, the evidence is on their side because, you, like you said, this took years. And it's still actually going to take a while. They're yeah. transporting 50 truckloads a day. And the pile is so big that it's not going to be done until February 2024. So That's fifth, a big
1: pile, man. 50
0: truckloads a day for months. That's how much waste was built up on this site um hopefully they're able to remediate like you said there is the plan kind of maybe to have a park there someday maybe in the park cherry they'll uh plant ginkgo trees uh, transition I'm gonna give you
1: a good high five for that one that was so good
0: gold, gold star for another transition here on <laughs> studio two so uh the ginkgo tree if you don't know it you've likely seen it um it's a 200 million year old species of trees and they get planted a lot in the city mm. because they're very, very hardy. Like they kind of can grow in all sorts of types of conditions. And one of the things that's interesting about the ginkgo is that their leaves kind of fall off all at once. They're the bright yellow leaves that you, uh, you might see around town. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden one day the street is, is blacktop and sidewalk. The next day it's all ginkgo leaves mm-hmm. because that's just the way they shed their leaves. It's like this sudden mechanism. And it's happening right around now here in our region. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have a smell component
2: mm.
0: when their their berries um, fall off and get crushed. It does emit a smell that some people don't like. Mm-hmm. So there's a love-hate thing going on with the ginkgo. But just be aware, it's a ginkgo leaf season in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, and scientists, they liken the smell to rotting cheese or eggs. It doesn't bother I me. I wonder... It really does Do you know I'm the d- smell? I, I have, you know, I live in a neighborhood where all these yellow leaves yeah. just popped up and I'm like, somebody needs to, we have to do something about this. Cause oh, people so that's are driving what over. You, it's the leaves. It, and, and no, but I, I'm like, now I'm going to roll down my windows and kind of see. Sniff around. Yeah. Sniff around and see if these are the ginkgos. So I don't the know. smell,
0: the smell I find to be kind of earthy and musty. It's, I don't find it to be that. Earthy. Offensive. Look at
1: you describing <laughs> the smell. <laughs> sound like a sommelier <laughs> or something.
0: A uh, leaf sommelier. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I, People have complained to me about the smell a lot, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's something maybe wrong with my nose or my senses because I've never found it to be that offensive. By the way, there is uh, something called the Philadelphia Tree Inventory. It's like Google Maps overlaid yeah. with information about where you can find ginkgo trees in our region. I thought that was really cool. So check yeah. that out.
1: Check that out. Something else, quickly, Tis the season, folks are getting bit on the road for travel, right? They sure are. On their... Catching planes, get ready for some busy, busy days Plans, at trains, PHL. Automobiles, yes. yes, almost a million travelers expected to take, go through Philadelphia International between last Friday and Tuesday of next week. We'll see if those numbers bear out. Yesterday's weather, over 150 delays due to weather yesterday at PHL. So people's Thanksgiving trip, not starting great, but hopefully... I we're just hope it's supposed to be sunny. Yeah. You know, we'll have some better weather going into Thanksgiving Day. So I we'll just see. hope
0: folks get where they're going yeah, safely,
1: safely, and enjoy your gobble gobble and turkey day. And
0: all enjoy that. your gobble. What's your and what's your go-to uh, Thanksgiving dish? The one you got to have. We were talking about this, but I forget.
1: yeah. Well, I make the six cheese mac and cheese. Don't ask me all the six cheeses. I just pick a whole well, bunch of different I and wanna, mix it in there. Yeah, <laughs> but that's gonna you. be my dish. And yours, I know you. Shout out to my, my
0: sister makes amazing pie. She's a professional baker. We get professionally. Baked pies by my sister, Hannah, every See, year. See, one
1: time I'm going to have to come over to your <laughs> <house>. You're invited. <laughs> anytime, Cherry.
0: Um, we're going to turn now to our Newsmaker interview, and it's about a new Billy Penn investigation from our next guest that digs into a surge in reports of alleged child labor violations in Pennsylvania since the start of the year. The state's Department of Labor says it's looking into three times the amount of complaints it received mm. compared to last year. Local business owners claim the system is confusing and with nearly a third of teens living below the poverty line in Philly, some kids say they need to work. Joining us now is Mayor Rindy, investigative reporter for WHYY's Billy Penn. He wrote the story and he's with us on Studio 2. Back again, Mayor, welcome.
3: Thanks so much for having me. So, Mayor,
1: uh, the surge of violations and child labor laws, I want you to break down the numbers and what are these violations looking like if you give us an overview.
3: Yeah. So in the beginning of September, the state put out these numbers saying this year we've gotten something like 300 reports of child labor law violations that we are investigating. And during the same period of 2022, we only got about 100. And so I asked them for some of the the data. And a lot of it is is really basic um, work rules that apply to minors. So how many hours they can work how late they can work, um, do they have work permits, some other paperwork things. And so there are a number of instances, including um, several in Philly that I found, where where the businesses or the kids weren't complying with the laws.
0: And you think when you hear that, that what you're going to uncover is some sort of terrible abuse. But it's a little more gray than that, Mayor. When you actually went and talked to some of these business owners and and some of the— young people who work, it's a little more complex. So what did you find when you sort of dug into the the allegations and
3: investigations? Yeah, well, I was interested in this because there have been reports across the country of serious uh, child labor violations of kids working in slaughterhouses and things like that. And I was like, is that going on here? Yeah. Um, but when you actually talk to people... <clears throat> There's some paperwork issues. Apparently, the state's um, system for reporting um, worker hours and information um, is is kind of clunky, and so there are some errors in there. And then the, the kids, in a lot of cases, they want to work. They feel like they need to work. And yeah. so if they can work 40 hours instead of there's a 28-hour-a-week a limit during the school year for kids of certain ages – if they can work more they 're going to do it, and they 're not going to complain so it's it's uh it 's more complicated than just uh, the idea of of young people being misused or abused
1: yeah, during the pandemic, there were lots of reports discussing how teens uh, were filling this labor void during the summers and during the school year because we had a labor shortage um, but teens have been working for years, so why now, why now was it? Was this a problem that always occurred, or did something else shift to where now the employers are making these little types of mistakes?
3: Yeah, it's really unclear. The, the state labor secretary actually said back in September, I think it was, that it's not clear why there's this surge of complaints across the state. Um, and, and these are actually the complaints they were investigating. Some of them had occurred in previous years. And just now, were they actually doing the investigations? So it's not like it all hit at once. Um, but also, there's a there's a new administration. There's a new labor secretary who's a, a, a worked in the attorney general's office, focusing on labor issues before. So I think there's more attention to it. Perhaps people felt like now was the time to report these things that had happened in the past. But it is unclear. We it, maybe over time we'll start to see more of a trend and understand what's going on better. In some ways, Mayor,
0: this makes me think: what's the point of these laws? Like what what are they trying to address and do they need to be rewritten or redesigned to accommodate what you're talking about, which is young people who are just trying to help their families out and, and help make a living? Um big picture, what, what is the purpose of, of child labor laws? Do they need to be reformed at
3: all? Well, I think, you know, I talked to one um this one employer who had got got dinged for for a number of violations, and uh he said you know, I understand the law needs to be there because um some employees do take advantage of yeah. it, and there's this sense that young people should be in school or shouldn't be um spending all their time working when they're sixteen years old, for example, and that there's a real uh, kind of um you know human rights and uh and child welfare issue here, so I think that's still still um that's still front and center here. yeah 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 whether whether there's an argument for allowing children to work longer hours certainly in some states they're pushing to to make it easier for young people to work but mm. it seems like in Pennsylvania the the it's really going in the other direction there's a concern that there's the the laws aren't being obeyed even as they stand and that they need to be tightened up or there needs to be more enforcement making the rules more stringent interesting
1: yeah and last question as we wrap up here i want to just ask you any quick advice in 30 seconds to employers who may hear this and get a little red flag? They employ teenagers. What should they be doing?
3: Yeah, well, the laws are really complicated for exactly what different age kids are allowed to do, how many hours are going to work. So there are um, professional organizations. There are lawyers. The the state's uh, Department of Labor and Industry runs seminars and things. So I think employers really just need to educate themselves about exactly what they need to do and then make sure that their, their employees are following those rules.
0: We appreciate you looking into this, Mayor. That is uh, Mayor Rindy, investigative reporter at WHYY's Billy Penn. Thanks for joining us on Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And Anna. so
1: we're really excited. Yeah, one more, We've got a housekeeping thing here. We do have a housekeeping but thing. It's an exciting yeah, housekeeping thing. Yeah, very thing. Really Go exciting. Ahead. Yesterday, we promised we'd shout out the names of our Avenue of the Arts ticket winners going to the No Name Pops. We have Debbie, Kim, Ruth, Alina, and Robert.
0: Yes, Debbie, Kim, Ruth, Alina, and Robert. Congratulations! And then headed to Cirque Holidays: Jonathan, Mindy, Teresa, Brian, and Belinda. Yay! Now you, yes, yay! You may be wondering: Is that me, Brian, or is that me, Teresa? Check your emails later today. You will get a follow-up. Thanks to everyone for all of your entries. We are glad that you were so excited about those prizes. We here at Studio 2 have the prize of another segment. Coming up right after this, talking about conflict resolution and Thanksgiving. Stick with us.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This
1: is Studio 2. Welcome back. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erin. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, picture this. Okay. Thanksgiving dinner. Sounds great. The family gets together. You haven't seen each other in a while. The food, delicious. Sounds great so far. But then, uh oh, someone brings up that one topic that you were hoping to avoid.
3: I am a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and my uh,
0: girlfriend's family is from the Midwest, and some of her family members are Kansas City Chiefs fans.
4: Oh, My brother usually gets the third degree about when he's gonna get in a relationship um, whenever we get into big family settings. Uh, probably Donald Trump, yeah. Politics,
0: U.S. politics in general.
4: The upcoming election. I don't think we're looking forward to talking about that. Historically, I remember it often being um, police brutality has been like an issue.
0: I think obviously Israel-Palestine is a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just, of course, the presidential election. That's always frightening. It is always frightening. So what do we do in those situations? Head down, say nothing hope it passes, or maybe we try to find some common ground. Luckily for us and you, we have an expert to answer some of our questions and yours. Trisha Jones is the director of the Center for Conflict Management and Media Impact at Temple University's Klein College. Trisha Jones,
1: welcome to Studio 2.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: And we are taking your questions and comments right now. What topic or topics are you hoping to avoid at the dinner table Are you wondering how to handle it? Do you have any advice? Call us now, 888-477-9499. Or you can also email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Trisha, I wanted to
0: start by asking about what happens to us internally when that tricky topic arises, like, you know, human psychology basics, what's happening in our brains when uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so brings up the topic that we all know is going to start a conflict?
2: Exactly. The first thing that usually happens for people is that they think this is going to not be pleasant. And so (laughs) (laughs) I I was listening to that intro and I was thinking, you know, that reminds me of my family, right, Mm -hmm. at the holidays, almost any of those topics. So when that happens, people immediately kind of go to that place where their emotions take over. And they start armoring up, right? They start Hmm. thinking about, what am I going to need to do to protect myself in these conversations? Uh, And as a result, they're not open to where the conversation could go. Um, And the more they armor up, the more that escalates the situation and the less comfortable they feel. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. Hmm.
1: So I I think this is, you know, Thanksgiving is hours away. It's tomorrow, (laughs) right? Before we walk into this big family gathering, especially if you know it has been difficult in the past, what should we be thinking about um, to sort of get our mind and our emotions in the right place so that we can have a successful, wonderful gathering of family?
2: Oh, such a great question. I always think about the fact that too often people go into those situations without having any kind of a plan. Uh, and they, uh, as a result, they get swept away in the situation, which generally doesn't go that well. Yeah. So if you have a plan, I like to think of kind of a three-plan approach. You know, I like planning. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. So one is that plan about what do I want to talk about, mm. right? Mm. So instead of just waiting for the topic to happen and then hoping it's a ride you want to go on, mm-hmm. you know, what are the topics that you want to bring up? There are usually tons of wonderful things we want to share and talk about with our family and friends at the holidays, but we don't think about, hey, I literally want to make sure I check in on X, Y, and Z, or I bring up the things that are happening with me in my life, or I want to make sure I find out how school's going for my nephew or whatever. So having that kind of plan of what you want to talk about is huge, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Second plan is how am I going to avoid the topics I don't want to talk about, or that we know don't go well in our families, right? Um, and that really has to do with what I love uh, to think about as my f- three favorite strategies, right? Activity, brevity, and levity. Activity, brevity, and,
0: brevity. and levity. Ooh, writing this down. Yeah. Okay. so walk me through those three.
2: Activity. Have something that they can do that's some sort of an activity that doesn't lend itself to just unfettered conversation. Yeah, board games, it's exactly. A, yeah. Board games, movies is a big one in my family. It kind of sounds right? like the distraction plan. A exactly. Bit. Yeah, okay. yeah. Something that people can actually enjoy doing, but in the doing of it, it's tough to talk. Mm-hmm. It's tough to have a conversation. This is particularly helpful when you have that one or two members of the family who just want to take over and dominate a conversation. That everybody knows is going downhill. Yeah, rapidly. This is so
1: nice. This is like a nice, kind way of <laughs> sort of bearing people away. Let's just, exactly. let's just play some sorry, some Monopoly. <laughs> okay. And
2: it. then we got brevity. Brevity. Okay. Keep the visits short and keep the interaction time short, right? Now, I have to tell you. But
0: sometimes I, I want to talk to my family. I want to get though. the
2: story. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, and this is your plan for when something's coming up. That you know is not going to go well. This is one of those, you know, in my husband and my uh, relationship, and we've been married a a while, um, one of the things we always used to say is, okay, uh, we're about ready to enter the front door. Okay, So what's our time plan? Right. How much are we going to what kind of time do we want to spend here? And, you know, how brief do we think that is? Because honestly, two and a half hours was the magic period of time. Two and a half hours, things would go well. And then that corner would turn. (laughs) Oh, and everybody's like, "Uh oh, you know, well, (laughs) okay, two and a half hours, we've got to go do something else. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be back later on. Right. Um, But kind of thinking of those brevity Things, right? Um, Because you don't want anything to just fill the space, the Mm -hmm. void, because those are usually the uncomfortable topics. And then levity. Levity, keep it light, right? You know, even if a topic kind of comes up that you know is not usually going to be pleasant for the family, right? Think about some comment that you can make or something you can do that just kind of lightens it up. Yeah. Uh, You know, something like, Oh, I can't wait to hear more about that. But you know, um, boy, we had a long ride, and it's time for us to take another, you know, restroom break or diaper <laughs> diaper changing was always a great one. That's a good one. You can use that, <laughs> I can use that one. Uh, right. <laughs> oh, you know, I have oh, I to go something. do that. <laughs> exactly. um, let me go. <laughs> okay,
3: yeah, let, exactly. I want to backtrack a little bit, though, yeah. Tricia.
0: And we're speaking with Tricia Jones, director of the uh, Center for Conflict Management and Media Impact at Temple University's Klein College. Talking about, you know, family conflict around yeah. the holidays.
2: Yeah.
0: I never bring up the topics that I know are going to trigger people. Yeah. But some family members Ooh, they love it. always do. So yeah. I'm trying to get in the mindset of, like, why people bring up those topics. Maybe they're looking for connection. Maybe they just want to get it off their chest. Maybe they enjoy watching people fight. I don't know. But, like, why Why do people instigate mm-hmm.
2: I think in my experience, it's that people don't feel like they are heard enough Mm -hmm. day in and day out in their lives. You know, they have a lot of time with other people, but they don't have a lot of opportunity to share who they are, what's happening to them, tell their stories, share what they're feeling about things. And that's why holidays are such an opportunity, but also such a potentially fraught situation, Mm -hmm. because here we are and who can we count on? So want to take the time to give us the time to be heard, our family and our friends. So a lot of people are coming together. You know, it's often for a lot of us a respite of, I know they've got to listen. (laughs) I know they've got to talk to me. They're my family. They're my friends. And so a lot of times people are like, they need that opportunity to to share themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But they don't necessarily do it in the best possible way. And that all comes out. And when you think about having whatever it is, nine, 10, a dozen, 24 people, all in that place who really want to be heard by the most important people in their lives, yeah yeah Yeah. it can become a bit of a train wreck. That's so interesting.
1: And we want to hear from you if you have questions or comments or techniques you've used to sort of stories you want to share, (laughs) brief stories you want to share about how to resolve conflict on Thanksgiving. they or other family gatherings. You can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. I want to run through some comments we've gotten. Just quickly, Sandy suggests if there's a conflict, get up from the table and go clean something.
0: That's like... I've done that. Cleaning the diapers or cleaning, cleaning the, the dishes. Di- yeah. yeah, there you go. Uh,
1: Joanne says, pretend you didn't hear what they just said. Sometimes you got to just ignore something that might be a little... You know, left or right comment from Marie says, Stay in your lane. Boundaries are important tools that help us to navigate complex relationships. My question for you, because you were talking about the family gathering, something that I've seen in large family gatherings is the hijacking of it for big announcements. You know, (laughs) I'll be not talking about this. When is it (laughs) something specific? We won't won't lay it out. So, I want to talk about this like, when is it? A good time to make an announcement with using this family, co-opting the family gathering for your personal, you know, announcement or when should you avoid it? Um, walk us through the thought process and then sort of also the bystander's thought process. If you want to say, hey, let's de-escalate this situation
2: because you can drop a stink bomb. Exactly. Well, first of all, I think surprises are highly overrated (laughs) in most relationships. Right. Because and especially when family get together, it's like somebody always tends to feel they should have known first or they should have had a heads up. Right. Like the surprise when you haven't told the parents first, you know, kind of thing tends not to go very well. Uh, it also matters what else someone else is hoping is going to happen on that day and at that time, right? So you don't know necessarily what their game plan is for the afternoon, the evening, or whatever. And, you know, having an opportunity to talk, especially if you're not the host of that get-together, is, is really helpful. Yeah, I'm I'm actually a real big fan of just kind of, you know, doing one of these, now we're going to announce this, I'd like to announce this when we're all together, but you know I want you to know. You know, mm-hmm. how's this, you know, what do you think would be the best time uh, for us to do this? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to bring in a caller now. This is Brian on the line who wants to talk about what happens when we don't say what we're Ooh. thinking. Because we've talked about diversion tactics, but hey, there might be a cost to to avoiding. So Brian, uh, what your, what is your question or comment? You are on Studio 2. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Um, my comment is is really that my experience is when everybody's, Avoiding the, uh, the electric wire in the room of conversation, um, it really drains the, uh, it drains the energy out of the relationships in, in the space. So nobody's saying what they think, and as a result, nobody's really engaging with each other in a real way. I think that's uh,
1: maybe a problem.
0: Hmm. All right. So, Trisha Jones, that's a really interesting comment by Brian. If we don't say what's on our mind, is there a cost to that? Does it does it sap the you know long term? Can it damage the relationship Mm -hmm. because it suggests we don't have a lot of trust with each other? I mean, is isn't there some positive to to saying what we mean
2: and meaning what we say? I think there's a lot of positive because that is the way we build relationship and connection, right? Small talk is, again, if that's where your relationships are, you can only do the small talk kind of thing when you're together. Everybody feels that inauthenticity, Mm -hmm. and they understand that you're just playing out this performance that is ultimately destructive, particularly if little kids and others in the family are watching this pattern because they see that, hey, you know what? It's not really safe here to say what we want, Mm. right? So that moves us kind of into plan three, right? Which is, if you're gonna have those really difficult conversations and be open and authentic, what are some ways that you can help make that conversation go better? Right. So, you know, first of all, the idea of, you know, having some ground rules up front. Right. And there are like three ground rules that we use in my family. One of them is to have a general sense of time that, you know what, we're going to talk about this for 15, 20 minutes. And then we're going to take its temperature, see where it is. And if we still kind of want to be having these conversations, because in my family, most of us don't agree on hardly anything when it comes to (laughs) those really big you know, questions of life. Uh, The second one is to have everybody have an opportunity to share whatever their point of view is uninterrupted, right? So we give each other a good listening to, right? We do the very best we can to really have, you have the floor, we're literally there, right, for you. And the third thing is to let people know when something has been said that it's starting to feel a little hurtful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even a lot of hurtful, right? But how do you do that without um, yeah.
0: offending that person? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, you say that's hurtful, and then that hurts yeah. them even more, and you get in that spiral.
2: Right? Exactly. Well, first of all, setting those, talking about those ground rules up front yeah. before anything is said, kind of takes the blame factor out of Interesting. it. All right. But the other way is, if that moment happens, instead of my saying, you know, Abby, you hurt me. You know, yeah. how dare you do that? You know, you know that would hurt me. I would say something like. You know, it's I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable with how the conversation's going. Right. So depersonalize. Right. Own the fact that it's your emotion that's happening there. And then, you know, see whether or not I often will say, you know, I want to understand what you just shared with me. Right. Can you can you say that in a different way Mm -hmm. so that I can stay with you in terms of understanding where you are?
0: I feel like delivery yeah. is so important, too, because you don't want to be like, sound like patronizing. Right. Exactly. You know, or pedantic. You yeah. want to like, you really want them to rephrase. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes like, I don't know, I just the way you, your inflection. Yeah. You have to like show that you're genuine when, yeah. like when you say something like, can you rephrase yeah. or state a different way?
2: Definitely. And the nonverbals are so important. Yes. The nonverbals are so important. Yeah. Yeah. Check your face. Yeah. You know, a lot of times those, the faces you
1: like, all of that can matter. I want to bring in a comment from Jess. Because I, I want to shift to questions, personal questions that family members ask yeah. people. It's not always politics. It's not always politics. Sometimes yeah. they ask you deeply personal questions. You might not have had a conversation for a long time. Jeff says for questions like when you when are you getting married? When are you having kids? His suggestion. He answers. I will consider that when I have some more time alone. Thank you so much for gossip comments you know that Tanisha is having another baby and her husband doesn't have a job. You know, that's what he's saying here. <laughs> he says, you just say, I didn't know that. I'll just try to con- concentrate on what I have going on, you know, and, and other people says, Hmm. Uh, Monique says her go-to is Hmm. Interesting. They gives a head nod, looks over her shoulder and says, Oh, excuse me. And moves on to the next thing. So how do you handle? Because especially, you know, family members, they ask you deeply personal questions yeah. about kids, about divorce, about recovery, like all these different things that can be triggering. How do you get out of that situation?
2: How about those eagles? (laughs) (laughs) Levity. Right. But you can also, you know, say things like, Now I want to talk about the eagles. That's right. Let's talk talk about those eagles, right? Um, Yeah, everybody's going to love that conversation, you know, no matter what's going on. Yeah, I I also think it's nice to say to people, thank you so much for caring. I'm not quite oh. ready to talk about that yet, but I really that's appreciate great. that that's on your mind. That's, that's smooth. Yeah, it is. It, you know, and most people are kind of like, yeah, I do care. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this later. Maybe we can go well, out for a Starbucks it, together.
0: I feel like you're, you're focusing smooth. on yeah, something sure. yeah. in the question that's positive or the comment that's positive. Mm-hmm. Even if you're ignoring 99% of it, you're like affirming them just to 1%. And I sometimes that really does help smooth things yeah. over. Yeah. Um, you mentioned how about those eagles, and I want to bring in an email from Meg who says, when I used to bartend, a customer taught me the best way to change the topic during a tense conversation, and this is a version of that. Ask what everyone's favorite Tom Hanks movie is.
1: <laughs> Everyone has a strong opinion about
0: this innocuous topic, and it turns into a passionate debate about Forrest Gump versus Castaway. Um and now I want to debate that because I don't pro, think those are the top two. Whatever whatever, the top whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever. Saving yeah. Private bridge Ryan. A, yes, a <laughs> That's spies, pretty good. So, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me ask you, though, let's imagine you've engaged in the conversation. You've done your best mm-hmm. to keep it even-keeled, not going great. How do you know when to just walk away and reset? And how long should you reset for?
2: Mm, great, great question. And uh, number one, when things start getting uh, blaming or shaming; those are the two. Mm. No matter who's doing that behavior, right? Um, because blaming is just going to go nowhere, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's not only going to not go anywhere between the people who are engaged directly in that, but anybody else who feels like they need to be team Trish or team Avi or team Bob or whoever, yeah. right? And, the, and then you get the factions, you know, uh, that, that take off from there. Um, and you know, blaming is one of those things that also carries over over time. Yeah. It also tends to carry over into social media, which is another part of the conflict dynamic For in family get-togethers that's really tough. That's also one of the ground rules that we have when we have one of those difficult conversations. Whatever we talk about right now, none of it goes on anyone's social media. Just mm-hmm. doesn't happen, right? It's going to yeah. stay here um, in the house. The shaming stuff, you know, uh, if I have to put you down to win my point, then that's just ugly times, too. And, you know, a lot of bullying behavior, and there's a lot of bullying behavior in families, as we know very well, you know, that comes out as these contempt statements about, uh, you know, I'm better and you're not. I'm superior, you're inferior. You're unworthy in the following ways. Um, And those shaming kinds of uh, comments, they almost always hit the target, and they go deep and they stay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Quick follow-up to that, because sometimes we've experienced trauma in childhood. Maybe we were bullied by a cousin or somebody. And sometimes, you know, you get into a debate or a, a conflict with someone now, but it's small. But the actual feelings that you have date back 20 years, 30 years, 15 years. How do you check your own trauma and make sure that you're not going back to a place and throwing Mm. the past into current conversation
2: what a great question yeah um and and First of all, that thinking about it before you ever get there, before you ever leave, before you're trapped in Philadelphia International Airport, <laughs> waiting for your flight to go where hey, That's now, another want. Tom Hanks movie, by that's the way. Right. The <laughs> so no. good. Yeah, that's right. But I also think you have to think to yourself, you know, and that's tough to do. Yeah. Because a lot of times we go, oh, I'm past that. I'm past that. Well, you know what? When you think about it, feel yourself. Feel your yeah. body. And you know whether you're past it or not. And if you're not past it, when that comes up in any way, shape, or form, even a tiny thing, you do an exit. You do a graceful exit, Mm -hmm. right? Find the nicest, closest, best off-ramp that you can take because you're not ready for it.
0: Real quickly, as we wrap up in about 30 seconds, can family fighting be healthy? Get it out of our systems, maybe feel a little Mm. closer afterwards. Is there any benefit To really having an argument as a family? Or is it a total loss?
2: No, it's a huge benefit. Mm. And we need to, that should be our goal, actually. You know, we shouldn't squelch conflict. We should help conflict breathe in constructive ways. And that means let's get some just basic ground rules and understandings of how are we going to talk together and support each other.
0: That's a great place to end it. I'll also add one more comment from Lou who just says, I'm gonna stay busy eating. I like that. There the you food go, little go distraction. That fills the mouth. <laughs> it does. Uh, thank you so much, Tricia Jones, uh, director of the Center for Conflict Management and Media Impact at Temple University's Klein College. So many pearls of wisdom there. Thank you so much for joining us on thank studio you, two.
1: Wonderful. And coming up, award-winning author Ayana Mathis on her new novel, The Unsettled. I like this music right here. Let's jam. Back into Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg, and I'm Avi wolfman Iana
0: Ayana Mathis's debut novel, *The Twelve Tribes of Hattie*, won wide acclaim when it appeared in 2012 and made all the big top lists and was an immediate bestseller. But it took a while for her sophomore effort—nearly 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> Cherry, however, you say the new novel, *The Unsettled* was well worth the wait.
1: It was an excellent read, and I loved it. And so did critics. I'll tell you a little bit about the book. It follows a mother, daughter, and her son and swings back and forth from a fictional town in Alabama to 1980s Philadelphia. Mathis grew up in Philly, so a lot of the book takes inspiration from real events that happened during her childhood in the city, like the 1985 Move Bombing. We all remember that, right? Mm. I recently got to talk with Ayana Mathis about the book, about her Philly roots, and started by asking why she titled the book The Unsettled.
4: There are two major poles in the book. One, one is Alabama. A tiny little black town that once was thriving and at its height, an autonomous black settlement. But when we meet it, it's the mid 80s. And there are literally five old folks left trying to hold down this place. And then the other pole is Philadelphia, where one of the sort of descendants of this all black town in Alabama has migrated to. Her name is Ava. And she lives there with her son. And they are quite literally, when we meet them, they are in a homeless shelter when the book opens. And then at a certain point, they end up becoming a big part of a... utopically visioned Mm. black separatist group that's a little bit the Weather Underground and a little bit the Black Panthers and a lot my imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, So the point is that all of the people in this book are looking for home, looking for freedom, looking for autonomy, looking for legacy, looking for belonging, and none of them quite have found it. Either they had it and it's gone, or they're really just not sure how to find what they're looking for. So in that sense, everyone in the book is, in some degree, unsettled.
1: Unsettled, that's what they are. You have three main characters, and you sort of touch on them a little bit, but it follows three generations of the same family. You have Duchess, the matriarch. You have Ava, the daughter of Duchess, and you have Toussaint, the son of Ava. Ava seems to me to be the main character. Tell us about her, and I'm... I am guessing she had to be a complicated character to put together. You have no idea how right you are.
4: And sometimes I think that she's part of the reason that the book took eight years. She comes from Bonaparte, Alabama, this very thriving, kind of amazing place that she left. And she bounces around for a while, various cities. She ends up in Philadelphia. That's where she settles to to some extent. Uh, She has a son. And she's always looking, I think, For the grandeur and Mm. beauty and just sort of massive magnitude of this Bonaparte that she left, this kind of utter freedom, the unprecedented nature of a black person living in a place where they were free, at least to some extent. Yeah. Um, And so Ava's looking in some ways to recreate home or to recreate something that makes her feel that sense of purpose and of belonging. and. She's almost willing to sacrifice anything to find it. I think she's fascinating, but she was tough to write.
1: She was a very interesting character. And I think about Philadelphia because you're from Philadelphia, grew up here. Yes. Um, And Philadelphia is the backdrop of this very complicated story that has a lot of layers. Why Philly?
4: Well, um, and also, you know, Hattie, the first book, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, was also set here. I think... um, I left Philly when I was was fairly young, um, then came back for a little while and then left again, but was always here all the time because my mother lived here until about a year ago and her health took a turn. But um, the, the sort of the 80s in which I grew up, they have never left me. There's this sort of imprint on my imagination mm-hmm. that is just... Philadelphia of the mind, you know, like the Philadelphia of 1986 or 87, my mm-hmm. teenage years, You know, it doesn't exist anymore. It is long gone, but it exists so deeply in my mind. It is so very real in my mind that I keep sort of setting things here in this city. I also have a lot of questions about it. You know, things like move the ways in which, you know, stuff that happened in the 1980s around fiscal crises and the AIDS crisis and all kinds of stuff that happened historically, also positively as well. The music that's come out of this city. Somehow it doesn't seem to have quite the same massive like national resonance, which really bothers me. So (laughs) so my spirit is moved to, to write about Philly just because it's just seems to be how I am. But I think there's also another part of me that's like, yeah. well, but there's so much here and it is
1: not recognized as such. And, and this book takes place between like 1985, 1988. So in the mm-hmm. latter part of the 80s, um, there's a character in this and no spoilers that because I've covered the aftermath of the move mm-hmm. um, issues here in the city. Mm-hmm. um, was a little bit reminiscent, I think, of John Africa. Um, I don't know because I, you know, I wasn't here when he was here. Right. But from the stories I've heard, this character cast was very reminiscent of him. Was John Africa and the story of Move part of your inspiration?
4: Yes, it was. I mean, I think less John Africa specifically, but the story of Move very much so. And and I should say, you know, it's not. I didn't want to write. MOVE's story in this book because I just don't feel I sort of have the right to it. It's such a raw wound and there are people in MOVE that are still alive. Yes. But I think in many ways, you know, I was 11 when it happened and I had so many questions and it felt like they never got answered. It feels like they're still not answered. But certainly I didn't even begin to get any answers for them or to them until I was probably in my like in college when I started to understand things like police violence and, you know, and police violence against black people and like what happened there. So in many ways, the novel is, those sections of the novel are about trying to address these questions that existed
1: in my mind and have sort of most of my life at this point. I, I want to zoom out because you're from Philly and learn to love writing here. I mean, when did you figure out like as a child here that you, this is what you wanted to do.
4: You know, I started writing when I was a kid, uh like really little, like, you know, 8 or something. Um and my mom still has this book of these kind of very silly little short stories that I that I wrote when I was just a kid. Um so I started writing then. I, I wrote all through my life. I wrote all through my high school. I went to girls' high. I w- wrote all go through my high. school. Go girls' high. <laughs> um, I wrote all through my high school life. Um, I, although I thought that I was a poet, which is much better for everybody that I'm not, because I'm not a very good poet mm-hmm. at all. But it but it was really a lot of my identity. Right? Was this and and as I see, you know, mentioned to you, you know how I, um, sort of early years of my life were a little bit tumultuous for various reasons, and so. Writing was always, writing and reading also, I should say, were these places of safety and solace and expression and rootedness. I sort of say very proudly as part of my identity, if people were to say to me, who are you really? I'd say, I'm a poor black girl from Philly. That's who I am. Um, And that is Pride, capital P. But, you know, I think a lot of that, that sense of identity, I think, was sort of shored up by the fact that I could write and that I was supported in it. You know, my mother did, my high school did, my friends did. So this was an utterly unique and unprecedented place to grow up, I think. Um, when I meet Philadelphians, like all over the way, I travel a lot. There's something we all sort of recognize in each other. It's so particular, like Philly is so particular. And I'm so grateful to it because it um, what well, makes me who
1: I am. Yeah, just a couple more questions for you. Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> you were a op- your first book, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, was selected for the Oprah Book Club back in 2012. Yeah. Your first book, your debut yeah. novel. I mean, what was that like? Has it been life changing for you? Utterly. <laughs>
4: it's like, Utterly life changing. And, you know, it's so funny. It's like when I think about it, it seems as though it happened to someone else. Like it's because it was so utterly unexpected. You know, I I was in grad school getting my MFA and we sold it. And I was so happy just to have sold this book. And we were going to publish it was supposed to be published in January 2013. And in October of 2012, so not very long before it was supposed to be published, Oprah Magazine said, oh, we're going to cover the book. And I was so excited. Oh, my gosh. It's the best thing I could have hoped for. And they wanted to do a little brief interview. Just had a couple of follow-up questions. So can, can we arranged for them to call me. Phone rings on the appointed date in October. I pick it up. I'm expecting an editor. And it's Oprah. And she's like, hi, <laughs> this is Oprah Winfrey. And I, I kid you not, I literally said, no, it isn't. And then we had this kind of back and forth. I mean, I, you know. I can tell you that story, but it's almost as though I can't remember how it felt because it's so gigantic that it, I mean, it
1: changed everything about my life. And now this is your sophomore novel, The Unsettled. Yes, The Sophomore. <laughs> Not bad for a poor girl, poor black girl from Philly.
4: Not bad, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: I want to say thank you so much for coming on Studio Two.
4: Thank you so much. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for being such a thoughtful reader.
1: Wow. I really loved that conversation. That, friends, was Ayana Mathis. Her new novel is The Unsettled. She's also the author of The Twelve Tribes of Hattie.
0: I have to embarrass you a little bit. Uh-huh. She said you were one of the best readers and interviewers she's run into.
1: That was nice All, of her.
0: On the interview circuit. Cherry Greg, folks. That was nice. Have of a great her. Thanksgiving, Cherry. Yeah, you
1: too. Happy Thanksgiving to the family.
0: And to all of our producers. Yay, Debbie Happy Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's Audio General Manager. From Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia.
1: I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everyone. A
3: pancake Having a derby. Erby in the Fendel Mendel Everybody eats when they
0: come
1: to my house